Several weeks ago, we began a study entitled Pictures of Grace. And what, what the goal of the study was, it was meant to look back throughout the Old Testament and find that the Old Testament testifies of the Lord Jesus. In fact, he said as much when he said, search the scriptures, these are they that testify of me. Meaning, it was the entire Old Testament that testified of the presence and the reality and the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And so, the goal of the study was to look back and search the scriptures and find Jesus throughout. And we've looked so far at Noah's Ark. Last week, we looked at the burning bush of Moses. This week, we come to an undeniable picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Exodus chapter number 12, verse number 1, the Bible says, And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be unto you, the beginning of months, it shall be the first month of the year to you. That's about, uh, most people believe that's uh, about April. Speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month they shall take to them every man a lamb. So to be clear, around April 10th, that's, we'll just say that so we all understand what's going on about the time frame. This is the 10th day of the month of April, approximately. The Bible goes on to say, Every man shall take a lamb according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for an house. And if the household be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next unto his house take it according to the number of souls. Every man, according to his eating, shall make your count for the lamb. In other words, one household was to consume one lamb. In just a moment, you'll find that they actually ate the lamb. And if the lamb was sufficient for one household, they were just to have one lamb for one household. But in some cases, the uh, inhabitants of one home was not enough to feed uh, or was not enough to consume the entire lamb. And, and uh, uh, a Jewish historian estimates that a lamb could feed no fewer than 10 people, probably no more than 20. So you understand not every household would have had 10 people. And so oftentimes the neighbors would get together and they would share in this one lamb. The Bible goes on to say in verse number 5, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. Ye shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats, and ye shall keep it un up until the fourteenth day of the same month. So remember, at the start we said this is about April 10th, and now the instructions are given that this lamb is to be removed from the herd and separated until the fourteenth day of that month. So we have... April 10th, this process should begin. April 14th, the lamb should be uh, separated for four days. Moving forward in verse number 6, the Bible says, And the whole assembly of Israel shall kill it in the evening. One lamb for every house. And they shall take of the, two, uh, take of the blood... And strike it on the two side posts and on the upper door posts of the houses wherein they shall eat it. And they shall eat the, the flesh in that night, roast with fire and unleavened bread and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Eat not of it raw nor sodden at all with water, but roast with fire, his head with his legs and with the pertinence thereof. 
And ye shall let nothing of it remain until the morning, and that which remaineth of it until the morning ye shall burn with fire. And thus shall ye eat it. This is how you should eat it. So the instructions, the, the recipe, you could say, was given in about verses uh, 8 through 10. But now they're given requirements on how they are to eat this lamb. And thus ye shall eat it with your loins girded and your shoes on your feet. In other words, to be fully clothed with your shoes on your feet and your staff in your hand, in verse number 11. And ye shall eat in haste. Maybe you've eaten with someone that has experience in the military. I don't know if you've ever done that, but oftentimes they'll eat much faster than you. I think it's because they enjoy conversation after the meal, but really they're taught to eat fast. And and so this is kind of a, a thing that happens with a military culture. Well, in this case, the Lord says, you should consume this lamb fully clothed, with your shoes on your feet, your staff in your hand, and you better be getting it. Eat with haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. And the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where ye are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. And this day shall be unto you for a memorial. And ye shall keep it a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. Ye shall keep it a feast by an ordinance forever." Clearly, if you have any experience with Bible study, if maybe you've read through the Old Testament, you understand that God has been trying to get His people out of Egypt for some time. Through Moses' leadership, God has given uh, nine plagues so far to remove them. And these plagues have been miserable. I'm talking about frogs. I'm talking about locusts. I'm talking about... Uh, hellfire. This has just been a terrible experience for Egypt. And the whole purpose of these plagues was to get Israel delivered from Egypt. Now we come to the 10th plague. And the 10th plague is seemingly the most severe. In one night, God will send His angel through Egypt and He will destroy or kill the firstborn of every household. And this remedy, this plan, is given to Moses for the preservation of Israel. So that as this angel passes through, he will not smite those of Israel, he will intentionally seek out those of Egypt. And God says, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Very few stories, very few things in this world start ugly and become beautiful over time. And so that's not the way our world works. In most cases, it's the opposite. Things that are beautiful eventually fade in beauty. 
I'll give you an example. You go to the dealership, you buy a brand new car. Everybody's excited because there is a scent that exists in that car that will, will not be there forever. We call it the new car smell. And oftentimes what happens is we'll go to a car wash many, many years after we've owned the car and they'll say, do you want raspberry or do you want leather or do you want new car smell? And I'll tell you, they've never been able to replicate that scent yet. New car smell is nice. It, I mean, it just has the presence of, uh, of, of, of just pleasure and excitement. And you get in that car and you take one big whiff and boy, you enjoy every moment. But over time, the beauty of that smell fades. And it begins to resemble the crusty fries that exist under the seat for years and years. You pull them out and it fossilized and petrified. After use and the process of time, something that was beautiful loses its beauty. Uh, the beauty of a, a young lady or the strength and, and, and handsomeness of a, of a young man, in, their, in the prime of their life, we may look at them and say, wow, what a, what a beautiful young lady or what a strong looking young man. And that's great, but we all know that eventually, over the process of time, the beauty that they had in those years will fade. I'll tell you, that's not to say that an older lady cannot be beautiful. I mean, look at my mother this morning. She's just beautiful and glowing and, and uh, just a <laughs> cross. I don't know what you're doing there, but that's okay. Um, but you see, we know that, that the things that that start in beauty eventually fade in beauty. Even the beauty of a flower as it begins in just a tender plant and begins to bloom and blossom. And, and my daughters love flowers. And basically, our yard is a little bit weedy at times. And so, man, they'll go get those little yellow dandelion flowers and they'll hand them to us. And like, hey, I got you a flower. It's like, great, you picked me a weed. Praise the Lord. Really excited. Hey, can you do that a lot more? Just be sure to get the root next time. But the beauty of a tender young flower will eventually be burned up by the heat of the sun. And that which is beautiful becomes ugly. And our world works that way. But in some cases, in very rare cases, something comes from that which is ugly and manifests itself to tremendous beauty. And that is the case in our passage this morning. The passage is hard for 21st century Americans who are very modernized and, and civilized and, and kind of uh, uh, uppity up. It's hard for us to read a passage about, about the sacrifice and the shedding of blood and, and the, the sorrow that must have taken place here. And, and certainly there's, there's ugly aspects of the passage, but from those ugly things springs forth a beautiful picture of Jesus Christ. And this morning as we study the passage, don't let the negative effects of the sacrifice, don't let the, the distaste that you may have in your mouth for the shedding of blood, don't let those negative effects on your mind somehow affect the beautiful picture that is found in Jesus Christ, the Passover lamb. This morning, as we have done many times before, I want to study the pictures in this passage 
And if you'll study with me, first of all, I want you to see there's a beautiful picture of Christ this morning, a picture of the preparation. A picture of the preparation. The Bible tells us in verse number 5 that this preparation was to be very planned out. It was to be very deliberate. And God gave clear instructions on how they were to prepare this lamb. Number 1, I want you to see in verse number 5 that this lamb was to be a pure lamb. He was to have purity. Notice in verse number 5, the Bible says, Your lamb shall be without blemish. This is uh, teaching us that when they went out to the pasture to select from the, the, the flock, that they weren't go, to go get the lamb that was on its last leg or, or to choose somehow the lamb that would be less valuable if they were to sell it or less desirable if they were to eat it or less profitable in some ways. No, no, no. When they went to the, the, the flock, they were to look out amongst the flock and select the very best, the lamb without spot and without blemish. And they were to choose that one ultimately to be the sacrifice. This is a picture of Jesus in that when he came, he was the very best that God had to offer. He was absolutely sinless in every area of life. He, the, the book of First Peter puts it like this, "...who did no sin, neither was there any guile or deceit found in his mouth. Jesus was in every way perfect and sinless, and yet when he came, he was destroyed on our behalf. He was the pure Lamb of God, sacrificed for us." This case is clearly seen as Jesus is put on trial... As false accuser after false accuser is set up against him. And you ultimately see Pilate being the the judge that is to judge Jesus. And to convict him and to condemn him. It's kind of a sad story. And it puts Pilate, the great politician, at a very uh, bad situation. Because as they bring Jesus, they're saying, crucify him. Crucify him. And Pilate interviews Jesus and asks him some questions and Jesus doesn't even open his mouth. Pilate's uh, amazed as false accuser after false accuser steps up and Jesus does no defense for himself. And Pilate asks him, he says, "Do do you not understand what's happening? Do you not have anything to say? And Jesus opened not his mouth. Later on, the Bible tells us that Pilate's wife comes up to Pilate And she says to Pilate, she says, Have thou nothing to do with this just man? For I have suffered many things this day in a dream because of him. In other words, she comes to Pilate. And and certainly in this culture, this would be totally uh, uh, unusual for the wife of a political leader to come up and say, Pilate, I'm just telling you, don't condemn this man. He is just and He is innocent. I had a dream and I've been troubled by this thing. I know He's innocent. Pilate then comes up with a plan. And the plan is this. He is to release one prisoner and he is to, uh, he is to release unto them a prisoner. And he says, okay, well, I have this man Barabbas who's, who's a bad man who was convicted. He's certainly guilty. And I have Jesus. Which one do you want? I believe Pilate's trying to politically handle the issue. He's trying to let an innocent man go free, and yet the people say, Give unto us Barabbas and crucify Jesus. 
Pilate later on is found washing his hands. And he says these words, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. Jesus was the spotless and sinless Lamb of God. The only accusations that were ever railed against Him were false accusations, and even they couldn't make those stick. Pilate said, this is a just man who is innocent of any wrongdoing. Jesus was the pure Lamb of God. Hebrews puts it like this, Jesus was tempted in all points like as we are, and yet without sin. This was to be a pure lamb. Number two, not only should it be a pure lamb, but it should be a mature lamb. Look in verse number five. The Bible says this. Your lamb shall be without spot or blemish, a male of the first year. You shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats. So what you have is you have the Bible saying that it should be a male of the first year. And I have to be very transparent with you this morning. Every time I've ever played this story out in my mind, I have imagined a very little lamb coming and being brought to the dinner table. A very small lamb taken to the sacrifice, almost carried in the arms of the, the, the head of household to sacrifice. But as I did a little study, I found, I know very little about sheep, but I found actually on the USDA's website, I found out that most lambs, even today, are taken to slaughter around months six to eight. That's the prime time for slaughter of lambs. And during that time... The, the lambs already weigh about 135 to 140 pounds. So when, when the Bible says a lamb of the first year, it's not talking about some insignificant, very feeble, very fragile lamb that's just been pulled away from his mother. This is talking about a strong lamb. And Jesus, when he came... He began his ministry at 30 years old. I was just talking to my wife the other day. As I turned 30, I said to myself, man, I'm the age of Jesus now. I better shape up. I mean, I can make all the mistakes in the world before uh, you know, 29 and earlier, but now I'm 30. I got to start living like Jesus did when he was 30. Jesus began his ministry at 30, and most people believe his ministry lasted for about three and a half years. That puts Jesus at 33 and a half years old. The Bible tells us in Isaiah chapter 53, He shall, become, he shall come and be a, a, a tender plant shall grow up before them. In other words, Jesus was not some old man who was decrepit and about to die. Jesus was in the prime of his life. Jesus had all of his best years before him. Jesus was a strong man. And, 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 and let's not even consider the fact that he was God at this moment. Let's just think about how he was a physically capable man. And yet my mind plays the, the, the Garden of Gethsemane when those that he knows are coming to take him away. He doesn't run. He doesn't flee. He doesn't fight. Jesus submits. The Bible says, uh, Jesus says unto them, no man takes my life, but I give it. 
In other words, Jesus didn't put up a fight. If Jesus had wanted to, uh, he could have called 10,000 angels. And I've got news for you. If he had called 10,000 angels, they would have been using the power of Jesus to deliver him. So Jesus didn't need the angels. The most upsetting battle in world history was when one Roman soldier was able to hold the hand of God down on the cross so that a nail might pierce his hands. Jesus submitted himself unto death in the prime of his life, a mature lamb and a pure lamb. But not only was this to be a mature lamb and a pure lamb, I want you to see, thirdly, I want you to see this was to be a secure secure lamb. In verse number 6, this is an interesting part of this passage. The Bible says, And ye shall keep it up until the fourteenth day of the same month. And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. As I mentioned earlier, this process was to start on the tenth day of the month. So let's just assume, as I said earlier, it's the month of April. It goes April 10th, the process starts. April 11th, April 12th, April 13th, April 14th. During this span of time, the lamb is to be removed from the flock and separated during that time. Have you ever considered where the lamb was kept? This is unbelievable, but as I was studying, I found that Jewish tradition is that the lamb would be kept in the house. Not in some barn out back, not in just some pen set to the side away from the flock. He was to be a living part of the family for four days. They were to hear the baaing of the sheep. And with every note that he, with every noise that he made and every cry that he made, he was eventually reminding them that in just a few days he would die for them. And then we get to know the lamb and they become familiar with the lamb and the lamb would be part of the family and then the lamb would be killed. Jesus, the Bible says, came into his own and his own received him not. Jesus came to this world deserving all the fanfare that we could have given him. Deserving the praise, deserving the parades, deserving all that we could ever offer him. If Jesus had come as king of the earth, he would have still been the most humble man to ever live. And yet he didn't come as king at this time. He came as servant to us. And when he came, he humbled himself. When he came, he, he, he laid himself down for us. And he lived amongst us. And he did miracles. And he healed. And he taught. And he did many things. And with every word he spoke, he was teaching us that he would be the lamb that would die for us. Those disciples got to know him intimately. And it must have been terrible for them to watch him die on the cross. But I want to tell you as I read the pages of scripture... And I get to know Jesus a little bit more. It pains me every, every day just a little bit more that that perfect Lamb of God had to die for my sins. Oh, I want you to understand this morning that this is a picture of preparation. I want you to not only see a picture in the preparation, but I want you to see a picture in the application. Verse number 7, the Bible teaches us, 
and they shall take of the blood and strike it on the two side posts and on the upper door posts of the houses wherein they shall eat it. The Bible says at the end of verse number 6 that every man, every head of household of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. Now we learned two lessons about the application of this. Number one, the application was that there was a command of involvement. At this time, there is no priest set up. There is no tent of meeting or tabernacle or temple. We are in Egypt There has been no system of governance made yet. The law, the Ten Commandments, has not come yet. There's nobody designated to sacrifice. And so what we find is the command is given directly to each father or head of house that he would take his lamb and in the evening all of Israel would take their lamb for their house and they would be the ones that would slaughter the lamb. They would sacrifice it personally and individually. It's kind of hard to imagine this, but when we read the Gospels and we see a man like Pilate condemning Jesus, when we read the Gospels and we see a man like Judas Iscariot who betrayed Jesus for just 30 pieces of silver... When we read the Gospels and we think of the torture that those soldiers did unto Jesus, beating Him with a cat of nine tails, placing a a robe upon Him so that the blood might uh, coagulate, and then ripping that robe off. When When we read of all these things, it's very difficult for us to understand. But I want you in this moment to take those people out of the story. I want you to remove them from the narrative altogether. And I want, I want you, if you can, to place yourself there. Because truly, and ultimately, it was not Pilate that condemned Jesus to death. It was you. And it was me. It was not the soldiers that placed Him on the cross. It was you. And it was me. We are the ones guilty for crucifying the innocent. We placed Him there. It was not for your neighbor's sin Jesus died. It was not for your brother's sin Jesus died. It was for your sin that Jesus died. And I want to tell you this morning, if you had been the only sinner in the entire world, Jesus would have died just for you. As these fathers take their lamb and sacrifice that lamb, they were involved personally. There was no priest to act on their behalf. It was an act between them and God. You understand this morning that there is no preacher, there is no priest, there is no person in your life that can deal with your relationship with God besides you. The Bible says there's one person between you and God, and that is the Lamb of God. Just as it was in this case, the father taking the lamb and sacrificing the lamb and taking uh, advantage of this prescription that God had given them, this remedy that God had given them. It was an act between the father and the father to be reconciled by the lamb of God. That is the case with you and I this morning. I I, I can't make you get saved. 
I can't make you live for God. I can pray for you. I can encourage you. I can preach God's word to you. I can long for you. I can hurt for you. I can be envious of of the life that you're wasting. I can be jealous that you're living it for somebody else. I can do all of these things. But at the end of the day, your relationship is between you and God and no one else. For there is one mediator between God and man. The man Christ Jesus. There's a command of involvement, but I want you to see, uh, secondly, there's a command of importance. The Bible says in verse number 7, And they shall take of the blood and strike it on the two side posts and on the upper door posts of the houses, wherein they shall eat it. There is a picture here with the door and the blood is to be applied Upon the door, I've heard preachers say that it formed or simulated a cross. I've never been able to find that in Scripture. I can't even picture it in my mind, really. It, It makes no sense to me that there would be two crosses when the middle cross would have been the one of importance. So it seems odd that there would be two crosses on the side. I I think sometimes we get to looking for things that aren't necessarily in Scripture. The, The idea here is not that the cross is deliverance. In fact, in American culture, it seems kind of silly that we we so readily embrace the cross. The cross is a symbol of torture. The cross is a symbol of suffering of our Savior. It's not the cross that saves you. It's the blood that saves you. God did not say when He comes and I will see the cross. No, 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 no. He said when I see the blood, I will pass over you. It's not a cross that saves you. It's not a church that saves you. It is the shed blood of Jesus for the remission of sins. We find here that the blood had to be applied. I want you to understand this morning, there was a lot of things that they had to do. They had to go through a lot of things. They had, to sep- they had to select the lamb. They had to go out into the flock and say, this is the spotless, ins- the spotless lamb that we want. They had to bring it into the house on the 10th of April. They had to live with them on the 11th of April, 12th of April, 13th of April, 14th of April. Then they had to take it outside and they had to sacrifice the lamb. And they could have done all of this correctly. In fact, they could have gone so far as consuming the lamb and and roasting it with fire. And they could have eaten it with bitter herbs like is instructed in the passage. They could have done all of this. But if they missed one part, The most important part, it would have all been null and void. All obeying God entirely is important. But in this case, the Bible says the blood is the difference maker. The blood could have been shed. The blood could have been collected. But unless the blood was applied, it was of no effect to the people inside that house. The blood had to be applied. I've got a question for you. And and I don't mean to be insulting. I don't mean to be accusative. I don't mean to make you feel guilty. But I just want to ask you a very quick question. Has the blood been applied to your life? A lot of times I think that we in America, we become so religious and we become so churchgoer that we miss the big picture of it all. 
We get so busy doing the requirements that God laid out. I mean, we've selected our lamb and, and we know that Jesus is the lamb of God and, and we've separated our lamb. I mean, there's, he's given a name above all other names. We've, we, we've designated Jesus as a, a loving God and he's loved us and, and died for us. I mean, we do all these things and, and then we even eat the food. I mean, we start serving God and we start living for God and we try to live right instead of wrong. We try to do all these things. But right here in the middle, there's something that has to take place for this to make any difference and this to make any difference the blood must be applied to your life don't get so busy serving God that you fail to be saved by God this morning has the blood been applied to your life it's not of works of righteousness there's of the deeds of the law there shall no flesh be justified There is no way to please God in your own works. The Bible says the only thing that pleases God is that God would make His Son an offering for your soul, a sweet-smelling savor unto God. Jesus' blood applied to your life is the only way unto God. Has the blood been applied? It's got to be applied. First of all, you see with me this morning a picture of preparation. And secondly, a picture of application. Then thirdly, this won't take long, a picture in the expectation. In verse number 11, we find a very odd picture in Scripture. The Bible says, and thus shall ye eat it. Well, how shall we eat it? Well, we should eat it with our loins girded, your shoes on your feet and your staff in your hand, and ye shall eat it in haste. This is very, I mean, I don't want to say it's odd, but it is is striking that they had to select the lamb and, and separate the lamb, sacrifice the lamb, and then the blood had to be applied upon the door. They had to do all these things. But now God says, while you eat the lamb, I want you to be fully clothed. I want shoes to be on your feet, and I want your staff to be in your hand. And when you eat it, you eat it in haste. Why? I mean, it, it seems futile. It seems that the blood is what mattered, and... And, and that, that, that the sacrifice is what mattered. I mean, we cooked it the way that God wanted us to cook it. Why do we need to be dressed? I'll tell you right now. When I eat supper, you know the best way that I eat supper? In a pair of athletic shorts, a t-shirt with my feet kicked up with a glass of sweet tea right by my side. I mean, that's just the way a Baptist eats. And as I look at this passage, it's just... Striking that they would eat fully clothed, shoes on. I mean, they're not going anywhere. It's completely dark outside. This all takes place in the evening. Why are they clothed? Well, it's a picture of faith. You see, God was doing all of this so that they might be delivered. In fact, the Bible starts with Genesis, the book of Genesis. That means beginnings, how everything began. The next book is Exodus. The word Exodus literally means exit. So what God is doing, to all of this is to allow them to exit Egypt. The whole purpose of all this is that they might be freed and delivered. And while they're eating the lamb and while the blood has been applied to the lamb, them sitting there fully clothed with their shoes on and their their staff uh, in their hand, it is a picture that they expect to be delivered. 
When I went to Thailand just a few weeks ago, there's many Pakistani families that are there illegally. Without going into way too much detail, they're a very persecuted people because they're Christians. Many of them have death threats on their life if they were to ever return to Pakistan. So they have fled to Thailand for fear of death. They live in these insignificant apartments. I mean, one-bedroom apartments with no kitchen. The bathroom is a glorified outhouse. We are talking about some of the most meager conditions in all the world. But in every house, the same thing was true. All of them had their bags packed. And, which is odd because their, their, their rooms are so small that the baggage takes up a lot of space. But the reason they have their bags packed is at any moment, the police, the immigration police might be coming. And if they got to leave, they got to leave. And so at all points in their life, they are living out of a suitcase because they're expecting one day to have some issues. As I read this passage and I see these people eating fully clothed, you know what they've done? They've packed their bags. They not only believe that they're going to be delivered from the angel that's destroying Egypt, they believe that God's about to deliver them. This is a picture of their expectation. This is a picture of faith. My friend, many people get confused on how we get saved. It's not a prayer that you prayed that saved you. It's not uh, trying to say the right words. We get so tied up in the words. You know, did I say repent when I prayed? Did I, did I, did I uh, uh, confess my sins? Uh, uh, we go through all this. Did I, did I say the right things? Did I do the right things? It's none of that stuff that saves you. The Bible says, for by grace are you saved through faith. Faith is passing over the baton. Relying that God is the one doing the saving, not yourself. Faith is the key that unlocks the manifold graces of God. It's saying, God, I trust you. I lean on you to be my salvation. And I'm ready to go. Well, I tell you what, I'm looking forward to the day when Jesus comes back. I, you know, Brother Sean was just mentioning to me in church, he, he wants Jesus to come back right before Give It All Sunday. And I said, Brother Sean, I, I don't know if that's the right way to be thinking about that. <laughs> He's sitting there trying to explain it to Kelly. There ain't no out on that. You just got caught. I'm ready for Jesus to come back, I tell you. Do you have your bags packed? Are you looking for that day? That blessed hope and appearing of Jesus Christ. Are you looking for that day? Because if you're a Christian and you have real faith, there might be something in your heart that says there's something coming. There's a better day coming. Hey, i got some deep theological truth for you right now. We are closer to Jesus coming back at this point in time than ever before in world history. Deep theology there. That will be our third vision elective. You just come on that. That would be great. Are you ready? Are your bags packed? Does your faith look to the return of a Savior? There's a display of faith in the passage. And then I want you to see, secondly, a display of fulfillment. Verse number 13. We'll close after this. We'll be done. The Bible says, And the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where ye are. I want you to read the next phrase with me. Ready, go. And when I see the blood... I will pass over you. 
And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Sounds like God's the one that's the judge of salvation. You know, I'll be honest with you. If I was to sit down and come up with my own way of salvation, it probably would look nothing like the way that God has designed. I witnessed to uh, quite a few people... And in my interactions with them, in fact, I was just able to witness to a guy this week coming back from a car dealership. He was my shuttle driver, and I witnessed to him. And and I was asking him, I said, if you were to stand at the gates of heaven right now, and they said, why should I let you in, what would your answer be? He said, huh, you know, that's a good question. I, I, uh, you know, I've been a pretty good person. I've tried to do a lot of good in my life. Do you believe probably eight out of ten people that I speak to, that's their answer? In America, in the Bible Belt. I mean, we're like the buckle of the Bible Belt. And yet, all these people have devised in their mind a system whereby their good outweighs their bad. Friend, that don't cut it with God. All men are sinners before Him, There is none that doeth good. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. We are wicked from the tip of our head to the end of our toes. We cannot please a holy and righteous God. So if you're hoping to get to heaven by doing more good than you are doing bad, that ain't going to work. But I, I just have to be real honest with you. Salvation by God's way sounds a bit good to be true. And I don't mean this to be critical. Have you ever considered what God has done for us? God did everything. I mean, from beginning to end. You wouldn't even seek after God if God didn't in some way invite you to Him. And God works in your life and gives you grace that you might be able to wonder whether or not there is a God and whether or not that God actually loves you. And then one day maybe a preacher, one day maybe a soul winner, maybe it was your parents, one day opened the Bible and began to explain to you that God loves you. The most famous verse in all the Bible, John chapter 3 verse 16, it screams of the love of God for you. Have you ever considered how good we have it? The fact that God not only loved us, but that He was willing to not ask more of us than what we could do of our own. And He said, I know you can't do it. There's no way you could impress me. So here's what I'll do. I'll send Jesus to die on your behalf. Because I know you can't do it. You're not capable. You're not qualified. So Jesus will come to the earth and He'll die for you. And I'll give unto you eternal life. Here's all you got to do. Believe. It is like the best present in all of world history has been wrapped up and handed to you. And God's standing there with it outstretched. And all you have to do is receive it. And because of that gift, we get to escape eternal damnation. We get to escape hellfire. And we're given a mansion in heaven. Are you kidding me right now? It's the greatest story ever told. God in heaven loves you and sent His Son to die for you. There's no greater news in all the world. And boy, I just tell you, sometimes it sounds a little bit good to be true. It's like, God, you, you, it's got to be more than that. There's, am I missing something? Does, uh, surely you've got to ask something of me. 
And just as in the case as in our passage it is today, God says, look, I've told you everything. I've done everything. And when I see the blood, my solution, not yours, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. All you got to do is receive the blood. The Bible says we are not redeemed with corruptible things such as silver and gold, but we are redeemed with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. You can be saved today. In fact, God does have this gift outstretched to you. In every scenario you play out in your mind, God this morning is extending to you His free gift of salvation. He says, behold, today is the day of salvation. Now is the acceptable time. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man will open the door, I will enter in and I will sup with him. God is literally today extending the gift of salvation. Here's my question. Will you accept it? And Christian, if you've already accepted it, will you appreciate it? Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Just live for me. This morning, God wants to do a great thing. If we would become so appreciative of the blood of Christ, I think it might change the way we view the world. We live in this world. We might start telling somebody about the blood of Christ every now and again. We might start living a life worthy of the blood that was spilled out for us.